0: Thank you, B.J. This morning we are continuing our study in the book of Romans and we are going to uh, look at verse 28 this morning. And um, I don't know if there's any other verse in the Bible um, that has helped me in my life when difficulties and troubles have come upon me. A a verse that is just a foundation, uh, a verse that points to a God who is sovereign and a God who is good. And it's my hope that as we go through this verse and we look in depth at it this morning. That it tells you something about God that is so big and so wonderful. And something about yourself, if you belong to God. That enables you, you to not only to endure when hardships come. But enables you to flourish. Flourish. There's vital truths built into this text, and and these truths are something that we need to breathe in deeply. These truths are something that we need to to digest. We need to get them into our hearts, into our souls, and into our mind. And and I want to start this morning by um, reading a quote from a pastor who will remain nameless about what this verse is not talking about. Part of this quote sounds pretty good, but it's in, in its entirety, it's it's, uh, it's it's not. It doesn't provide me any hope. "Quote: Promises you've been standing on, dreams you've been praying about, in this year, God's going to cause things to fall into place. He's going to make things happen you could never make happen on your own." Now, if this quote was read this way, promises you've been standing on, he's going to make happen, you could never make happen on your own, I'm I'm all for. It's that middle section, that middle section that takes a verse like this and twists it into something that it's not. Dreams you've been praying about in this year, God's going to cause to fall into place. God is not a genie at your service, or at my service. We don't serve a God that's a genie. We serve a God that is the sovereign of the universe. That's what it means to be God, is to be sovereign, to be in control. That's the very nature of what makes God, God. And if you read this book, you will see this all over the page of this book. And so today, today what we're going to talk about is this God, this almighty sovereign of the universe gives us this promise that he is working all things for our good. And so as we begin this morning, I want to briefly talk about the context. And and if you remember, if you've been with us, the context is Paul, as he is uh, going through this great chapter eight in the book of Romans, he is telling us about a hope (laughs) A wonderful, great, and awesome hope. And when we talk about hope in the Bible, remember, we're not talking about hope like, I hope this happens, I hope that happens. We're talking about hope, meaning we are able to place our trust, our hope in something that we can stand on. And in the context, Paul is talking to a group of people who either are or will be facing situations that may contradict, seem to contradict, feel like it contradicts that hope on which they and we should stand. So let's look. In verse 18, we have this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory. Then look ahead in verses uh, 35 and 36. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Look at these things. Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine. Nakedness, pearl, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the context that Paul is writing these promises to us tribulation, nakedness, sword, peril, sufferings. He's giving us something to hope in. And, and as we go through, if we I'm just briefly going to lay out some of the things that Paul has said to us as Christians, as he's talking about hope. We learned, we have learned that we are to hope in the fact that the present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. We are to hope that one day we will receive the redemption of our bodies. That as creation groans, one day we will be revealed in completeness as the sons and daughters of God. We have hope because even in our weakness, when we don't know how to pray, as we learned last week, that we are helped by the Holy Spirit. And today, today we have the hope that for the believer, all things work for the good of those who love God, those who are called. In many ways, this verse is the answer to the prayer that the Spirit prays for us that we talked about last week in conforming who we are to the will of God. That the, the answer that God has is this, if, if the Holy Spirit has informed us and as we begin to pray and our hearts get conformed to thy will be done, what happens is, is God says, yes, my will will be done in your life and it is good. So let's walk through this text. Let's walk through this text. And we preachers love a text like this because Paul just sets it up for us um, And so I just want to walk through some of these clauses and then I want to get to some real meat and some things that I hope are real, um, not just practical, but I hope that you see the foundation building. So the first thing that I want you to see in this text, I love this, I love that Paul says, we know, we know, this is not we guess, this is we know. We know. And in some ways, we can contrast this to last week, right? Last week, in the previous verse, Paul says we don't know. We don't know the secret will of God. This week, Paul is saying we may not know that, but what we do know, we do know what's getting ready to follow in this verse. And ultimately, what I want to argue is that what Paul is arguing in this text is that we know the character of God as Christians if you are a believer you know the character of God that he is sovereign and that he is also good you know that through the word and we know that through our relationship with him although we know <laughs> although we know these things when hardships come Many times it causes us to doubt those things, doesn't it? And so one of the things that I think Paul is doing here is he's saying, lift your head up. Strengthen those weary knees. Right? We know, we know that our God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love him. So what do we know? and we're going to talk about several things that we know, but one of the things that we know, the next thing in this verse, is that we know that God causes. You see the wording there. It's very important. The inspiration of the biblical writers is, it's important that we look at the words. We know that God causes. What this means, and through reading the Bible the conclusion we come to over and over and over again is that God is not a cosmic chess player who tries to stay one move ahead of us. He's, not, he's also not a... I don't know a right uh, wording here, so you can help me afterwards. But he's, he's also not a God that sits up in heaven and reacts to whatever that we do. He's not reactionary in that way. This verse tells us that God causes. And what does He cause? God works. God causes all things. And we have talked about this, and you've probably heard sermons where they say this, and and it is true. In the Greek, all things here means what? All things. Not very tricky. Now, in the context, Paul is talking about suffering and tribulations and these sorts of things, but the wording that Paul uses here is a big enough word to encompass all things. So God causes all things. You know, a parallel verse to this is found in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Let me just read that to you. You don't have to turn there. Let me read it for you. It says, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Again, here we see in the Bible that God is working all things according to whose will? His will. So that God is causing all things, And so you may say, well, what is his will? And I, it's good that you're following along here in my notes. And his will is this. His will is ultimately his own glory. But in that, the way that God gets glory is that he causes all things to work together for the good. And so the next thing that we see that God does is he causes all things to work together for the good. And this is where lazy Bible readers get off into heresy. Lazy Bible readers will get off into heresy at this point because we want to define what good is. I'll never forget, my dad tells this story of um, when he was a, a, a young preacher. He went to something, some conference, and uh, they were talking about that, that God wants to bless you Meaning that God wants to provide you with right now physical happiness and joy and these sort of things, and that this was what the good was. That God wants to give you the desires of your heart. And so, the, 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 whoever was leading the seminar said, So, you know, if there's a certain type of car you want, you know, God wants you to have that, and you just need to go and claim it at the dealership. And so, my dad went to the dealership and he claimed this Cadillac. And the uh, salesman came along and said, Yeah, you can have that car for. 60 payments of whatever. And dad thought, okay, well, it must be that God wants me to have it and get on the payments, and then he's going to pay for it. And so he signed up for it. He said it was the worst car he's ever owned in his life. And he took a bath on it because it was a lemon. And it taught him that when God makes these promises, and does God want to give us good gifts? Yes. Does God give us good gifts every day? Yes. But what it taught him is that there was something deeper here. There was something more important here when it is talking about the good. Remember what's happening here. There is suffering, persecution, famine, nakedness, and God is not saying in this text He is going to take those things away in this life. He said much more than that. He is using these things for our good. And we have a glimpse of this, and we'll get into this more in weeks ahead. But let's look at verses 29 through 31, and let me just point out some things. So we know that God causes all things to work together for the good, for those who love God, those who are called, for those He foreknew. He also predestined to do what? He predestined to become, this is our good, there's no greater good than this, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Isn't this what we all as believers want, is to be conformed to the image of His Son? So that he, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren and receive the praise and glory and honor that he's due. And notice this other thing that's so good in this passage. And those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also did what? Glorified. Our ultimate good, our final glorification. I can't think of any more good than that. The problem, as I see it, is that we like to define good solely according to the already, not to the not yet. This life, we like to define good in that way. And we also, we like to define good with, by what we want. And God defines good as in the not yet and in what is best for us. And we all understand this because we have all grown up in a home somewhere or we currently have children. And what I mean by this is this. Um, If I allowed Flannery to choose her own breakfast, lunch, and dinner... Do you know what she would choose? Candy. Right? Candy. So yesterday, uh, we were out in the yard doing some work, uh, and she bolts out of the house uh, last night, 30 some odd degrees, no shoes, no jacket. And she's mad at me because I am not giving her what she deems good. And as a loving father... I'm not allowing her to do that because why? I don't want her to get sick. Do you know where her favorite place to ride her bike is? In the middle of the road. Not the driveway, the middle of the road. Would a loving father allow his daughter to ride her bike in the middle of the road? So in some sense, when we talk about this promise, although we kick against it at times, we understand it. For those of you with older kids, and you, you sit on them to try to make them study, why do you try to make your kids study? Just because you're mean, awful, no-good parents, right? No, it's because you love your children, even though they don't understand it. And so what we do as parents, in many ways, it's what God does to us, and in that, in as much as we have control which ours is limited, God's is infinite, ours is limited, and as much as we love our kids, we use both of those things to invest in their life for their ultimate good, which may not feel very good to them at that moment. So kids, hug your parents. No, just kidding. Afterwards, hug your parents. Now, His purpose In these things. His purpose is for our ultimate eternal good. And so my stance. Our stance. In the midst of a heavenly father. Who is sovereign and good. Is that our stance on our best days. Is that we recognize and realize that we are vessels. That we are tools. We are instrument in the hand of God. And that my joy and my comfort. And my rest is in His plan. And when I get off this mindset, when we get off this mindset, and when we want to define our good, and when we want to take control of our lives, that's when we get anxious, fearful, worried, and depressed. Now, God causes, God works all things... Together for the good, and notice this qualification, and we're going to spend just a little bit of time on this this morning because we're going to delve into this later, and some of you may be anticipating that this morning, and it's not coming this morning, Um, but we'll delve into it later. But there is a condition here, and the condition is this. Notice the condition. He causes all things to work together for the good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to God to his purpose. In in many ways, this is Paul's definition, and we see this in his writings, of what it means to be a Christian. And what it means to be a Christian is to love God. What it means to be a Christian is to be called by God. And those of you who know your Bible, when you hear this phrase, those who love God, there should be a verse that comes to your mind Especially as you, if you've paid attention in the book of Romans and we know that no, all the no ones there in chapter 3, no one loves God, no one does what's right. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And remember that verse that I'm sure most of us memorize at some point in our life in 1 John chapter 4, 9? What's that verse? That we love God because He first loved us. And so what we see is that those who love God are those on whom God has revealed Himself and and lavished His love upon. And when we have seen God for who He is and when we have experienced that, the only thing that can happen in our souls is that our love for God just increases. And so those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, those who whom God has loved, those whose eyes and their hearts has been open to the gospel message that we are sinners and that we are helpless and that the only way out of that predicament is to put our faith and trust in Christ and that we realize that God has made a way. And that as we hear and as we understand this gospel, we begin to love this gospel, but more than the gospel, we love the God of the gospel. Our hearts are set free there, and so as Paul is saying, for those who are my children, who are the children of God, for those whom God is their Father, for those who have a relationship with God, for those all things work together for the good. Because for those for those, joy in God is better than the joy that's in this world. Now, I want to give you two examples before we move into some application. In one example that I want to give you from the text of God working all things together for the good, my favorite—well, it's not my favorite example. Both of these are my favorite examples, but one is Joseph. I remember the story of Joseph. He was wearing the coat of many colors. His brothers didn't like it. They tricked his dad, said your son is dead threw Joseph in a pit, were going to kill him. Had a meeting, decided to sell him into slavery. He was shipped off into into slavery. Actually did fairly well there, was wrongly accused of rape because he he would not sleep with the queen, with Pharaoh's wife. Was then thrown into prison where things got great, right? He interpreted some dreams and these guys were going to go to bat for him and get him out, except we remember that they forgot about him in the prison. And then finally, when he gets released from the prison and he's in the court, and his brothers confront him and go through all these things, and they're saying that they're sorry, they realize who he is, and these sort of things, he utters these words in Genesis 50, verse 20. You know these words, right? He tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God... Meant for good. And what's interesting in the Hebrew, this word meant is the same word. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And when he says what you meant for evil, that word in the Hebrew means to weave or to fabricate. The idea here is what you meant, created, caused for evil. See those words? You brothers, you were doing something here. What you didn't know is that God meant that for good. And that through this, one of the things that Joseph got to see, is that through these evil intentions, the remnant was saved because God provided for his brothers in in the midst of this. The other is Jesus and his death on the cross. Was it evil? Was it evil that the Pharisees spread lies about Jesus to try to get him condemned? Was it evil that Judas sold out Jesus for silver? Was it evil that the guards plucked his beard and beat him and spit in his face? Was it evil that they hung the savior of the universe on a cross and killed him? But oh, what good came out of that evil. What man was meaning for evil, the hardships and the tribulations that Jesus went through, God not just caused or turned or whatever, God was at work in those circumstances working out the good. Not only the good of Jesus, whose name is above every other name because He is the Lamb that has taken away the sins of the world, but also for our good, because we now have a way to be reconciled to God. And so when we really begin to understand what's going on in this verse, we learn, there's two things that we learn. There's there's two things we learn about God, and then there are several things that we hopefully learn about ourselves. And here's, again, what we should learn about God. He is sovereign, and His will will be accomplished. He is working, He's not passive, He's not reacting, and He's not a cosmic chess player. His promises and decrees are sure. This verse makes no sense, and you can have no security of hope if God is not sovereign. If God's not sovereign, then the only hope we have is the worldly kind of hope. And our hope would amount to, I hope God comes through on his promise, just like I hope the patriots get beat this afternoon. No security, no firm foundation, so when troubles come, if that's what your hope is like, It will crush you. You will not make it to the end. Your salvation will not hold. And not only is He sovereign, but He is good. He is in it for our ultimate good. And He loves us enough not to give us our dreams. Not to give us our desires. He knows and loves you and He knows what you need. One of the things as Whit preached a couple weeks ago, and he rightly noted that one of the things that Paul is addressing is uh, uh, some Stoics um, here in, in, the, in the church at Rome. And, and one, of the things that, one of the things that we get and just abolishes some of these ideas of Stoicism is that God is not an impersonal force, but that God, as we sung about this morning, as B.J. prayed this morning, God is our Father. And God is good and He is relational and He is doing something in your life. He is working for your ultimate good. And so we must cling to this promise. When times get difficult and we begin to doubt, we need to remind ourselves of this promise. And we also need to repent of any doubt of the sovereign God of the universe. And we need to pray and we need to read... And we need to repent until we get to a place where we can joyfully sing with every fiber of our being, God, thy will be done. I'm trusting you in the midst of this circumstance. The second thing that I want us to know in closing is what this says about us. What it says about us is that we are deeply loved by God. We are deeply loved by God. And don't forget this. In the midst of turmoil, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of tribulation, remind yourself that you are loved by God. The other thing that we need to know is that distress, famine, nakedness, the sword... And in the midst of that, not only are we loved by God, but God is doing something through that. There is purpose and there is meaning. It's not purposeless. And that is so helpful in the midst of turmoil and pain. The third thing that we need to know is that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. And if you could just get one taste of heaven, if you could just get one taste of, of being in the presence of God Almighty, not through a a mirror dimly, but rightly, you would trade everything you had for it. You would trade everything you had for it. Fourthly, we are now in the arms of a loving, sovereign Lord, whether it feels like it or not. I've had to preach this verse to myself so much and have had to say to myself, Lewis, don't trust your feelings. Your feelings lie to you. There's a truth. God is sovereign, He's working, and He's good. He's good. And lastly, lastly, suffering in this world is real. And I don't want to treat suffering Lightly. Suffering is real. What, I'm, what Paul is arguing for is not a Pollyanna approach to life in which we just try to put this glossy, nice picture on things and we try to like uh, uh, look at all the things as not as bad as it could be or whatever, a glass half full type of person. No, suffering in this world is real and it's horrific and it's evil It's not, it's not outside of the control of the loving, sovereign, good God. And so this morning, this morning, I hope that you, if you haven't already, that you put this verse to memory. And I hope that as you put it into your memory, that you memorize it correctly and that you remind yourself of it when things get difficult that you rehearse it in your mind as families as dads as husbands these are the type of verses we need to write on our doorpost of our house so that as our kids and as our spouse are going through difficult times that this is where we lean this is the foundation not on this thing of everything's going to be okay Depends on what you mean by everything's going to be okay. We define that for our kids. We define that for our spouses. We define that for ourselves. So when suffering comes, we have a footing that is sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I am so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful, God, that you choose to reveal things about yourself that gives us confidence, that gives us a place to rest, that gives us a place to stand, that gives us a place to fight from. God, I know that as I preach this morning, that I'm preaching to some folks who are going through difficulties in their life right now. Heartaches, pain, turmoil. God, I know that we have missionaries that we support all over this world that are suffering, that they're under threats. God, I pray that, Lord, this verse, your word, your character of who you are will uphold all of us, especially those either in harm's way or those this morning who are going through difficult times. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you. We are amazed that you're sovereign and that you love us. And we're amazed that you're sovereign and that you love us and that you are working for our good. We don't deserve it. But we glorify you more because of who you are. All this is only possible through your son, Jesus, who you sent to die for us so that we could have a relationship with you in whose name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to take communion together, which is fitting, giving these verses.